everyone. How are y'all? There's people out there. I'm sitting on the front row, so I'm just blindly uh, in my own world. My name is Jarrell Wilson. I am the Church Start resident here at Urban Village. I primarily am up in Edgewater, and this is my first time making it down here, so I'm very excited. Um, before we begin unpacking the scripture, can we start with a word of prayer? God of grace and God of glory, on your people, pour your power. Fill us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Enrich our experience of community in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a fun scripture. Both of them, absolutely exciting. Uh, to me, first of all, it starts with Satan, and what's not to love about that? Jesus is over here minding his own business in the wilderness, doing what people do in the wilderness. I wouldn't know because I believe in staying indoors where it's air-conditioned. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't believe at the same things I do when it comes to heating and cooling. He's out in the wilderness. Here comes Satan and starts to tempt him, which... I know that I don't have to worry about because I'm indoors and Satan's in the wilderness. <laughs> and then Jesus is also walking, something I try to avoid doing, and, and there's these demon-possessed people, and they are so fierce, so scary, so terrifying, that the entire town refuses to take the path that they decide to haunt. And not only do these people scare away the townspeople, but they recognize Jesus. So that, for me, is absolutely fascinating. And then they refer to him as if they've already met. And I'm, I'm walking down the street and somebody pops out at me who everyone else is running away from and they talk to me like they know me. It would throw me off for a second. But Jesus responds as if he knows them too. And so I'm just amazed at Jesus's ability to handle very awkward social situations. And so when I read the scripture... And I examine, like, what is going on in this text. I can't help but hear there's something else going on. There's something else going on. This first temptation of Satan uh, to Jesus in the wilderness, all you have to do is bow down and I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is wave your hand and you can turn the stone into bread. All you have to do is jump off of this building and the angels will catch you. Surely God won't let their only son die. And I'm thinking about this idea of being tempted in the wilderness. And the wilderness is something that keeps popping up in the Bible all throughout it. These people who decide to tell their sacred stories to us keep bringing up the, midst, the wilderness. They keep bringing it up. For some reason, wilderness is important to spiritual journeys. It's important to scripture. And this particular temptation of Jesus brought me back to Exodus in the 32nd chapter. So I know y'all don't have Exodus memorized. Uh, we're going to go back in time. Close your eyes with me. Imagine that you are a child of Israel and you are in Egypt. This man comes up and says that God had told him to set you free from slavery. Somehow, 
after God has killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, after frogs have visited, after plagues have come, you get your freedom and y'all are marching through the wilderness to a land of promise that this man claims is flowing with milk and honey. You get to a mountain, he climbs up to the top, and he's gone. Y'all don't hear from him for a few days. Feel free to open your eyes. In this moment, what is it that you're feeling? You've left the home that you've known your entire life. All of your ancestors for the last three to 400 years have been in this like state of slavery. This is, you are the first generation of freed people. And the person who is leading you is gone. The God that has set you free, you don't hear from. In Exodus 32, the people's response is to make for themselves a God to worship. So they gather their jewels together, pick off their earrings, throw them into a pot, melt this gold down, and build a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. They grew tired of waiting on the God that set them free, and they decided to choose bondage to a new God of their own making. I would say a demon of their own making. And when people ask me questions like, is scripture still relevant today? Exodus 32 comes to my mind when I look at the New York Stock Exchange and see that there's a golden calf in front of it. And then as I was walking my house guest through downtown, did y'all know that there's a golden calf just a few blocks north of here? <laughs> but the Bible isn't relevant for us today. Um, in the second story, though, we see Jesus casting these demons out, sending these demons into swine, and then the swine run off and drown themselves. These men are ferocious. They are so scary that people avoid them. But that's what the text says. I kind of want to see if there's something underlying it. Are there people in our situations, in our societies, that are so fearsome that people avoid going, or like avoid encountering them, try and avoid their path? Are there neighborhoods that people try and avoid that we know of? Now, I know that we're not like societies back then that push dangerous people out instead of giving them the help they need. But hypothetically, if we were a society that pushed people to the side when they needed mental health care or when they needed help applying for asylum or when they needed help figuring out their immigration paperwork or when they needed access to water, um, where would they be? Uh, uh, let me just kind of spitball here. Maybe Flint, Michigan is a place where people get pushed to the side when they need access to clean water and can't find it. Or maybe Inglewood is one of those neighborhoods that people like to just boop, 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 scoot around so they can get to where all the hipsters are opening up beautiful new coffee houses. And maybe Woodlawn is that neighborhood that people drive around so they can get to Hyde Park and hang out where the Obamas used to live. Um, but this is all hypothetical um, because we don't know what scripture is saying to us today. I found myself wondering, what is it about demons? Because first we have Satan who comes up, which 
I get excited when I see Satan appear in a text. It always throws other ministers like into this problem of, I am a progressive preacher. How am I going to talk about Satan? And I admit, as a person who grew up in a conservative Christian environment, when I became more progressive and started listening to NPR, one of the few things that I got rid of was this idea of spiritual warfare, this idea of angels and demons. Progressive Christians don't believe in that. We listen to podcasts, like Practice Resistance Podcasts, available at UBC's website. You can go to practiceresistance.org and check it out. Um, right, shameless, uh, y'all. <laughs> Look, the Lord works in many ways, and some of those are some free advertising. <laughs> and I thought, uh, now I don't vote this way anymore. I don't think this way about heaven and hell. I have to give up this idea of warfare that cannot be seen. There are certain things that progressive Christians just cannot hold on to when they make this transition. <clears throat> but my lived in experience combated that idea. I had seen too many lives changed by forces that I could only describe as demonic. And then when I looked at societal sins that just kept coming back up, I had to say, there's a reason why we keep getting trapped in these ruts. There's a reason why we always know what neighborhoods to avoid. There's a reason why we always know who is out and who is in. And some people will only use the sociological or psychological words to describe it. But as a person of faith, there is an entire lexicon that I have been passed down from generation to generation. There are words that we use to describe these types of systemic evils. And that word is demonic and even satanic. And when I look at what this word could possibly mean today, I begin to see that there are demons that exist in our society. Demons of racism, demons of ableism, of homophobia and of transphobia. And I think that there is a tempter that comes and challenges us when we are in the wilderness. It says, if you simply do this, then everything will line up. If you just get this one promotion, then you will no longer need to depend on others. It's a demonic temptation of isolationism. If you just do such and such, surely then you will have all that you need to be happy in this world. When I was younger, my parents told me if it comes too easy, then it's not the right thing. And these temptations that we have that exist in society, uh, these things that try and lure us away from the difficult work of becoming more and more loving and kind and gracious and generous, these things that try and distract us from the mission and vision of Jesus Christ in the world, I think, deserve to be labeled as demonic. But, and this is a big but, 
we don't have the luxury of avoiding the things that are demonic in the world. We don't get the luxury of pushing them out side of our own bubble. Because Jesus doesn't say, oh, everyone else is avoiding this path. Perhaps I should avoid it as well. Rather, Jesus walked head on into the darkness and despair of the demonic world. And when people saw that these men were ferocious, they turned away and ran. But Jesus saw something different. Rather than see the ferocity and the danger, Jesus saw the human being not just the spirit that he didn't like, not just the spirit of aggression and violence. Jesus saw the humanity in these people. Jesus saw that they needed help. And Jesus calls us to see the humanity and people that are called demons, to see the humanity and the people who are made to be marginalized, to see the humanity and people whose water is covered and filled with lead, to see the humanity in people who are trapped in airports because of executive orders, to see the humanity in people who are told that their gender expression isn't right and that they need to go to other bathrooms than the ones that they feel most comfortable in. Jesus calls us to see past the nonsense of our society and to see the humanity in others. That, friends, is spiritual warfare. And I know that this type of language is heavily associated with types of religious traditions that have harmed many and many people, myself included. But I also see why this language was formed. Because at the end of the day, there are still large questions that are left unanswered by sociology and by psychology. And that's why I keep being a person of faith. For me, Jesus answers questions that I can't get answers to from other people. And then Jesus leaves me with more questions and I get frustrated. But that's a different sermon for a different day. Amen? And scripture gives me a type of empowerment and language and beauty that gives me what I need so that I can follow Jesus Christ. Scripture, when it points to what we struggle with in the world today, doesn't tell us that we struggle against climate change, although we do struggle against climate change and people who seek to profit off of the damaging of the earth. It doesn't tell us that we struggle against homophobia per se, but it does tell us that we struggle against different forces that may or may not be harming others. As you see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says our struggle isn't against enemies of blood and of flesh. Our struggles are against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers in this present darkness. We are fighting against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Rather than confuse me, this excites me. Because the language I hear when I open up my news app says that our struggle, we are resisting a certain president. 
we are resisting a certain mayor. But scripture gives me language that says our resistance isn't against this president or this mayor, but rather the spirit behind their actions. Because we can take out Donald Trump, we can take out Rahm Emanuel, we can take out Rauner, we can put in new people. And yet the same problems keep coming back. You notice, we thought that once we removed a former president from office and brought in someone who promised us change and hope, that all of a sudden we would stop these wars and we would bring back our kids and start rebuilding our schools and everything would just be half hunky-dory and racism would end and you know, kumbaya. That was the promise that we got in 2008. And some reason we got through 2008 and yet racism is still here. Because it was more than who was sitting in an Oval Office, it was a spirit behind that person, a force that exists in heavenly places. We're fighting against forces that aren't just on earth, and we're only doing the work on earth and not doing the work in the spirit. Are y'all tracking with me? I see confused faces. We're going to get there in Jesus' name, I promise. (laughs) Because Islamophobia didn't pop up in the 2016 election using language like grab them by their privates didn't just pop up in 2016. Objectifying women wasn't just like created when Playboy came out. There is a spirit behind these things. And rather than try and push back on the spirit, we push back on the people that are operating in that spirit. And that work is good work too. You do need to stand up for the people that are doing harm, but you also need to push back on the spirits behind it. We need to find out what is motivating these actions. What lies behind this? Why are the men on the side of the road that Jesus encounters violent? What is going on that causes them to act in such a way? Why is Inglewood a place that people avoid? Why? Perhaps there are people there that need something and aren't getting what they need through the means that we get with the things that we need. Are you tracking with me? Perhaps these were once thriving communities and a system built a roadway through their neighborhoods, separating them from economic advancement on the other side. Perhaps the schools that are supposed to be educating people and giving them economic opportunities are being shut down. And instead of schools being funded, private prisons are getting contracts. And those kids that are supposed to be going through pre-K and elementary school and middle school and high school and then Lord willing on to college are instead getting streamlined through a different type of educational system. Perhaps these juveniles are not being considered beautiful children that we should invest in but rather delinquents that we need to correct. Perhaps the people that are experiencing violence and ostracization aren't doing it in a bubble, and that there is a spirit that we have failed to challenge in our world. And that is a great place to stop. 
and to leave and to be told that my sermon was good <laughs> and that it challenged you and that you thought really long and hard about it. But I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Perhaps there is a spirit behind the actions we take that causes harm. Perhaps when Jarrell posts something online, he's doing it with the wrong motivation. Perhaps there are some ways in which I need to re-examine the way I interact with people of different genders and different sexes. Perhaps I need to enter into a spirit of repentance and see who are the people I've considered demonic and pushed to the outside of my neighborhood. Are you tracking with me? Are there ways that I have been that person that said, ooh, those people are too ferocious. Let's take the other route. The red line isn't safe. We'll hop on the blue for a second. Perhaps all of us need to look at the spirits behind what we are doing so that we can truly follow the lead of Jesus Christ. This idea came to me when I was sitting in one of my favorite places in Chicago. I was in synagogue. There's one of the things that I like to do as part of my spiritual practice is I go every Wednesday at 4 o'clock and I meet with these elderly Jewish people. Well, they're elderly to me. They probably wouldn't consider themselves elderly. <laughs> I'm a 25-year-old. So think of what... A elderly to a 25-year-old is, and that's how old they are. <laughs> and we get together, and we sit around the text in Hebrew, and we just wrestle with it. What is God trying to say to us in this text? What does God mean with this one word? What are they really trying to get at and trying to say through this? And one of the words that we got stuck on was the word seraphim. Now, seraphim are often portrayed in Christian literature as these beautiful, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed angels with a ton of wings, and they just hover and float around. But in Scripture, something else is describing them. They're later in the book of Isaiah, these seraphim are described as having scales and of being slithery and of having ferocious poison and venom that can kill people like that and burns them as they die. And so I was thinking, as were the people at the table, what is the truth? Who are these seraphim? Are they beautiful angels or are they ferocious, violent, murderous snakes? And the answer to the question is, it depends on the context. So in Isaiah chapter 6, which we were reading that day, these seraphim flew around God and they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's Hebrew. <laughs> So those are the angel ones. But later on, people are running from the seraphim. So then I, you can assume if they're running from them, chances are they're not angelic. And then it said that they died because they got bit. The weighing of spirits, deciding what is angelic 
and what is harmful, what brings life and what brings death, is clearly a difficult decision to make. Because we have seen, history has demonstrated, that many Christians have had difficult times deciding what is right and what is wrong. Slavery was right and scriptural for a really long time. Abusing wives was scriptural for a very long time, and in some communities still is. Children didn't have rights for a very long time because our ideas were being debated. How do we decide now what is right and what is wrong? Because there are a lot of things that we do, things that we operate out of, that we might be accidentally harming people. There are things that we purchase. There are things that we do. There are encounters that we walk away from thinking, ooh, maybe I just said the wrong thing. How do we weigh these spirits? And the answer came to us. It comes to us regularly in community. The reason why Urban Village Church and Aaron James Brown specifically is constantly emailing you and telling you to join a small group is constantly presenting different types of spiritual practices and disciplines, is constantly saying, hey, you can serve over here, you can do this, isn't just because we want to look like we're the church with our stuff together. It isn't because we want to write down the numbers and say 80 people are in small group now, we are doing so well. It's because we believe, like John Wesley, that when Christians who desire to be made like Jesus Christ get together and really openly and honestly fight over what we think is right and wrong, that the Holy Spirit comes into the space and leads and guides our conversations. We believe that these types of groups, these types of practices, Act like an anchor so that when the wilderness and the storms of life try and blow us to and fro, we know where we are, we know who we are, and we know whose we are. I am not just Jarrell Franklin Wilson, child of Charles and Ramona. I'm Jarrell, a member at Urban Village Church a participant in the global community of faith known as Christianity. My story didn't start in 1991. It started all the way back, even before Exodus 32. And I've inherited a tradition of people who wrestle with God. I am anchored in this community. So when things come and I don't know, does this bring life or does this bring death? I have a community of people I can turn to and say, what do you think about this? I don't know. Will you help me? Will you guide me? And it's a long and it is a tedious process because it could take years. It could take centuries for us to right wrongs for us to set slaves free, 
for us to allow women to own their own property, to vote, to hold office. It could take centuries for us to do the right thing. And we're going to struggle. We're going to mess up. But we have this promise that God is walking with us. That we don't go into the wilderness alone to be tempted, but we go with a communion of saints. For me, that's the gospel. I don't have to face my demons alone. I don't have to face this world alone. When people tell me to be ashamed of who I am, I don't have to face that alone either. God made this community and gave it to us as a gift so that when we're in the wilderness, we have the hope and the promise that our community will walk with us until we get to those green pastures, to those still waters. Amen. Amen. Pray with me again, if you will. God, there are many spirits vying for our attention. There are many temptations that stand in our way that try and hinder us from becoming more and more like your son, Jesus. Remind us of the anchoring that we have in this community when such times arise that we are tempted to do the wrong thing, remind us that our community is here for us to help us balance, to help us weigh what is right and what is wrong. Give us the humility to ask for help when we need it. Give us the graciousness to offer help when we see those in need. And give us eyes like Jesus that see the humanity in people, no matter what. We pray these things in Jesus' name.